another installment in uh, First Timothy tonight. We'll be in chapter four. I've been there the last uh, several weeks. Um, you know, part of the reason that we predominantly preach through books of the Bible it really does uh, show us all uh, how we can read the scriptures on a day-to-day basis. Uh, my, my hope really is that uh, doing this week and week in and week out, uh, that you can begin to say, all right, uh, I, instead of just, uh, you know, flipping up your Bible, whatever page you get to and put your finger on something, starting there, you can begin at the, book, at the beginning of a book and you begin, can begin to work through it chunk by chunk, day after day, and begin to get some tools that you don't even know you're getting. <laughs> Uh, so that uh, this isn't the only time that you're fed during the week, but it's every day uh, that reading the scriptures is a part of your life. That's really our hope uh, for you as a church. All right, let me pray. We'll get started. Uh, Father in heaven, we want to be uh, a people of your word. Lord, that we would not view your word uh, simply as a, a book of morality. Uh, Lord, not a, a book of uh, stories, uh, but Lord, as uh, one great narrative. The narrative of salvation, how you created a people who rebelled against you and that you've been seeking them out ever since. Oh, Lord, would you woo us once again uh, with your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I don't know if you've got pen or paper, but uh, you can grab pen or paper if you have it. If not, uh, you can get the trusty notes app uh, in your phone. All right, I'm going to go through pairs of words here, and you're going to pick one. You're going to pick the word uh, that you think is more important to Christianity. All right? You ready? Nestor's over there. She's got her pen and paper. Um, she's ready to roll. Others of you look like we got a lot of notes at people tonight. All right, here we go. Mind or body? Spirit or matter? Sunday or weekdays? Here's where it gets personal. Missionaries and pastors or farmers and teachers? Theology or science? Evangelism or social justice? Heaven or earth? Faith or reason? Kind of burst your bubble. Some of you probably picked up on this. The answer is both. <laughs> In every single pairing. And maybe you picked up on my little trick, and if so, kudos to you. Maybe you, you got the uh, last week, you got the uh, steeple and the people. Maybe you figured it out. I'm just one big trickster up here. Uh, but all tricks aside, and even if you correctly answered both all the way through, I think in your heart of hearts, in your conscience, and maybe even in your life, You've fallen for the age-old trick that the devil's been pulling on us called dualism. 
You've fallen for it. I've fallen for it. And dualism is just this. It's dividing reality into two separate spheres. And these two separate spheres often compete with one another. On one sphere, you've got the physical. The body, matter, weekdays, teachers, farmers, science, social justice, earth, and reason. It's easy to see those things as corrupt, maybe even evil. And therefore, they're going to be avoided. And now on the other side, you've got the spiritual. Things like the mind and spirit and Sunday, missionaries, pastors, theology, evangelism, heaven and faith. And those are seen as good, not corrupt. They're certainly not to be avoided in Christianity, but they're to be pursued and even embraced. And just so you know, dualism is not a new problem in the church. Many trace it all the way back to Plato. Plato lived 400 years before Christ. And then during the, ride, the, the time of the writing of the New Testament, there, a, a new kind of thinking would happen. That really was just, just Plato's thinking that would evolve into what was called Gnosticism. And it continues today as evidence in our little quiz. Now, you might be rolling your eyes. You're saying, Marsh, here you go again. You're getting all intellectual with us. I'm just a practical person. Give me something to sink my teeth into. Instead of this hoity-toity smart people stuff. Well, I can understand that. Pastors are terrible. I have a, we have a hard time recognizing that all the books and all the blogs that we read aren't necessarily all the books and all the blogs that everybody else reads. But hang in there with me. I want to show you how these ideas are important, how these ideas give birth to the practical ways that we as people live. So let's read our text together. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. The word of the Lord. Thanks. All right, let's put these verses in perspective. Where we've been in 1 Timothy. Remember, Timothy is a pastor who is in Ephesus. And Paul's the one writing this letter. Timothy is the apprentice, the pastor apprentice. And, and Paul is away. He's not present. So he's telling Timothy how to lead the church. And by proxy, he's talking to the rest of the church on how they're to, they are to behave. This is chapter 3, verse 15. Paul gives his purpose statement. And so far we've been seeing what kind of behavior Paul is requiring from them. Chapter 2, we see that the church is supposed to be a, 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 there's supposed to be a, a people of prayer. There's supposed to be a people who care about the whole world because God cares about the whole world. Then, Tim, then Timothy is instructed on the particularities of men and women and how they're to relate to one another. It's chapter 2, second half. 
In chapter 3, like we saw last week, the people who, who are ensured this happened are deacon and elders. They're people of extraordinary character that are to lead the church. And Paul closes chapter 3 with a doctrinal statement, with a confession. But it's not just a doctrinal statement. It's not just a confession. It's also a song. It's a song that these leaders are to sing. Martin Luther said, never trust a theologian who doesn't sing. And I would say, never trust a leader who doesn't sing. Here's what that confession, that song, here are the lyrics. Verse 16, chapter 3. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So you see, the song is about Jesus and Paul's utmost concern for Timothy, for the church at Ephesus, and for us, is that we would stay centered on Jesus. See, Paul knows that the biggest threat to the church is getting off center of Jesus. And the people who are going to do that aren't people on the outside of the church. They're people on the inside of the church. This is what Paul predicted when he left Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, we see Paul talking to the elders who are in Ephesus. And he said, there are going to come from among you wolves, fierce wolves, who are going to speak twisted things and are going to draw people away from Jesus. Paul predicts this in Acts 20, and then it comes true. We saw that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul tells Timothy to silence the false teachers. And these false teachers aren't people on the outside of the church. They are leaders within the church. And today, what we see in the first five verses, we get a sense of how these church leaders became false teachers. And we get a sense of what their teaching actually was. So in verses 1 and 2, we see this interior spiritual dynamic on how these leaders became fierce wolves, how these leaders became false teachers. You see it there. When it says, talks about demonic forces, it's the first step in this whole trajectory. Satan's activity is going on. Now, when you think of Satan worship, when you think of Satan's work in the world, what pictures come to your mind? For me, black clothing, baggy black clothing, 666. Sacrificing animals, upside down crosses. That's what I think of when I think of Satan worship. But the truth is that Satan is much, much slyer than that. He's not so obvious. What he prefers to do is he prefers to come into the church, masquerade himself behind something good, something biblical, something moral. And then he begins to draw people away from Jesus. Because here's Satan's ultimate point. He's not so much about building his own brand. He's just about weakening Jesus' brand. And he's really, he is really hard to detect in what the people he's influencing actually say. He's much easier to detect by what they don't say. See, if these false teachers, if they aren't thinking much of Jesus, if Jesus isn't portrayed as being precious to their souls, if he's not worthy of absolute allegiance, and if he's replaced with some kind of empty morality, where he's just a teacher, then he might be on to Satan's activity within the church. 
See, this is why Satan is called a deceiver by Jesus, John 8, 44. And once these false teachers, once they are influenced by Satan, then they become a liar just like him. They become a deceiver just like Satan himself. And we know what Satan does. He uses the scriptures. He did this with Jesus in the desert. And he begins to lead people astray by talking about maybe the importance of family. The importance of being mentored. The importance of being a good steward with your money. The importance of working hard and being successful. And all these things are good. But what false teaching does is it makes them central. But Jesus alone is central. And when this teaching gets down real deep into the leaders of the church, they go from being leaders in the church to being influenced by Satan. And then they become hypocritical liars. So do you see the trajectory? Influenced by Satan. Then they become liars themselves. And the last step that we see in verse 2 is that they have a seared conscience. And this is where things get really dark. See, here's what Satan does. He's taking you on a journey, and it's a journey away from Jesus. It's a journey away from Jesus by making something peripheral central. And on this journey, you can be assured that the warning bells are going to go off. That's what the Holy Spirit does, is he warns you. He warns you that you're going down a destructive path. The signals are going to go off in your conscience, but you're going to argue back with your conscience. And the longer you argue back, the harder you argue back, the more your conscience becomes seared. It becomes cauterized. It becomes rendered insensitive. The nerves are going to be deadened. And you no longer hear the bell. And that's when God has handed you over. So do you see the trajectory? You're sold a bill of goods by the devil that looks biblical, that looks godly. You buy them. You sell them to others. And the Holy Spirit warns you all along the way. And you end up where your conscience is dead. Let me illustrate this. What might happen? If you go up to the nursery up there on the second floor, I think there are 11 rooms. Let's pretend there are 50 rooms up there. It's a lot of rooms for flooring. It's a lot of rooms to paint. It's a lot of rooms to put nursery stuff in. There's only one. Let's pretend there's 50. The first room you're in is blue. You go into the next room, and it's a little less blue and a little more green. You go to the second room, the third room, and it just becomes less blue and more green, and in the 50th room, it's pure green. And you're given a paint sample from the first room. And you realize that you're in a room that's nothing like the color of the first, and you didn't even realize it. That's a trajectory. And that's how we drift away. And I just have to ask the question, has this process begun for you in the last 12 months? Has it started during the quarantine? 
Maybe you've made something good into something ultimate. It might not be dualism, but it might just be. That's what it was for Ephesus. That's what Timothy had to combat. And according to Paul, what Timothy had to combat in this dualism was what we see there in verse 3. These false teachers are shaming the two most basic appetites of human beings, sex and food. The teachers are forbidding marriage and they're requiring abstinence from certain foods. And you can understand why if you've been around Christianity very long. You can understand from a Christian perspective. I mean, sex really can be easily perverted into something quite damaging. Some of you have experienced that firsthand. In fact, we all have. And I bet you those false teachers were like, hey, look at Jesus. Never married. Paul, never married. Look at all the gross things that you see in our city. Sexual perversion. Ephesus was littered with prostitution. They were telling all the people in the church, just stay single, forbid marriage. That's what they were doing. It kind of makes sense, wouldn't it? And then food. I mean, the, the, the whole history of the church has listed gluttony as one of the deadly sins. And Jesus, he fasted for 40 days. Jesus assumes that fasting is a part of our normal rhythm in the Christian life in Matthew chapter 6. So you can understand how these false teachers are sinking their teeth into the people in the church. And it's attractive. Because what they're doing is they're making people feel really guilty. And the only way to soothe your conscience is to hide your inner wickedness by your outward observance. It's really tempting because it seems like you can control gluttony and sexual immorality a lot easier than you can control the sins of the heart. Things that involve things like selfishness, holding grudges, racism, greed. Before you know it, the people in their church, their faith is all about the things that they don't do. And Jesus has been displaced. The goodness of their creator has been denied. But think about it. Think about our appetites for sex and food and where they come from. I mean, Adam and Eve were told to eat all the trees of the garden except one. In other words, food is really good. Just stay away from that one. Genesis 2.24 says they're naked and unashamed. I hate to break it to you, but that's not a relational metaphor. We're talking about sexuality. So you see, both food and sex are physical things. They're part of what life is like when you have a body, and that's the way God made us. I mean, just think about how God did make us. I mean, we were made from the dust of the ground, from matter, from the physical world. And then God breathed his breath into us, his spirit. So we aren't just souls and we aren't just bodies. We're embodied souls. We're soul bodies. And then we see this in Jesus' life and his ministry. He forgives sin, spiritual redemption. He heals bodies, physical redemption. We see at the end, end of all things. The ultimate destiny for us as Christians isn't just heaven, 
But it's the new heavens and the new earth where heaven will come to earth and we all get new bodies that don't decay, that last forever. So forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from certain foods is about as unbiblical as it comes. Even though at first it can soothe your conscience if you've been made to feel guilty. See, do you see how things get real practical here? If you begin to combat this dualism with everything you have, it's going to change your life. All of it. It's really going to change your work. All right, let's just take my, my house, okay? At my house, I'm a pastor. I don't have a side gig. This is my, well, maybe it is my side gig. Parenting is my full-time gig. But this is my profession. This is my calling. My wife, Jenna, on the other hand, and if you know her, she's a registered nurse. She's a registered nurse about two blocks up the street at Arlington Elementary School. So, whose job's more important? Mine or hers? You might say, well, Marsh, you do the Lord's work. You're a pastor. I mean, her job's important and all, but yours is like the most important. Was well, dead wrong. Because if we're embodied souls and we're soul bodies, then we at our house have to value both of our callings. So I've got to sacrifice to support her work and she's got to sacrifice to support mine. That's how this whole thing looks at my house. What's it going to look like at yours? Think about ministry. When you put both these things together, that means you've got to balance out with your word ministries, evangelism, discipleship, and your deed ministries, meeting the needs of the body, mercy ministry, serving the poor. These things feed off one another. You, you don't serve the poor so that you can be evangelistic. And neither does it go the other way. They feed one another. They don't parasite off one another. Think about the disciplines in which you engage with. We looked at work, we looked at ministry in our church and in your life, but think about the disciplines that you engage in. Think about your New Year's resolutions. Maybe you gave up on them a decade ago, but think about when you actually did them. Or, I mean, not did them, but you made them. Nobody does them, let's be honest. But think about all the ones you make. If you tend to make ones that are only about your body, they're about what you eat, they're about your exercise, then you're valuing your body. Good for you. But what about your soul? You might say, well, Marsh, God gave me body. I'm just trying to be a good steward. I understand. But you have inward means too, you know. Others of us, maybe those of us who are a little older, we've kind of seen how things, the trajectory of things are going. We know we can't stop the aging train. See how things are never going back to the way they used to be. I think I've turned there once I've turned 40. Things are never going to be like I was 23. I think I thought that even when I was 38. If I just worked a little harder, things would get back that way. They're not going back that way. <laughs> you get to the point where you say, this old thing, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it's going to burn anyways. Who cares? They're just going to put me in an urn. 
So what I'm going to worry about is I'm going to fight my sin. I'm going to stay prayed up. And I'm going to read my Bible. Congratulations for viewing spiritual disciplines as important. But God gave you a body. He expects you to take care of it because you're going to have one for all eternity. But maybe none of these things are striking a chord with you. Mercy ministry? Meh. Evangelism? Meh. Work? Meh. <laughs> Eating healthy? Meh. Reading your Bible? Meh. Makes sense to me. I mean, it is 2021. You, know. you can blame everything on COVID. <laughs> and I can understand if that's where you're at. But can I remind you of God's goodness to you, brother and sister? See, God's creation, even though it's been tarnished by sin, it still makes God visible. God wants us to see his goodness in creation. That's why he put goodness on repeat in Genesis 1. That's why in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are in display in all their glory. That they're just directional signs that point us to the goodness of God. I mean, John Calvin wrote, there's not one blade of grass, there's no color in this world that's not intended to make us rejoice. So brother and sister, can I send you on a joy expedition? Start exploring the goodness of God and creation and beg God to convince your heart that he's good to you. If it clears up tonight, Look outside of the sky, not for 10 seconds, but for 10 minutes. See the glory of the stars and the moon. Tomorrow, if it clears up, look at the blueness of the sky. Here in a couple weeks, when the trees start to bloom, marvel at their beauty. Go to the gorge, see the rock formations, go to the pinnacles of Berea, go to Raven's Run and see what God has made. Go to the zoo and look at the daggone red panda. Enjoy God's image in the joys of gender and marriage and sex and children and family life and friendship. Find a light in the work of your hands and food and drink and babies. Look especially at the arts. Look at music and literature, painting, sculpture, drama. See, God has put all this on display. So that you might look at his creation to find him, the creator. And maybe it's his creation that woos your heart to gaze at Jesus, the beautiful one. The one who left the glories of heaven to take on flesh so that, you, so that he can stand in solidarity with you. The one who restored people's bodies and their souls and one day will restore your body and your soul. The one who succeeded at all points where you failed. The one who died the death that you deserved and your breath of God on your behalf. Not because he had to. Because he wanted to. The one who rose again from the grave. The one who appeared to 500 witnesses over the course of 40 days. The one who ascended to heaven so he could send his spirit to form his church, your family, and fill you with purpose in the world to recreate it with him. So maybe, 
Just maybe your heart will wake out of its COVID slumber. And maybe you'll understand Romans 8.32 in a whole new way. It reads, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, even created things? Let us pray. Father, uh, may we see your goodness in all things. Lord, I pray you would open us, open our eyes that we don't need uh, to go to some, uh, some really beautiful place, though, though we're glad for that. But Lord, we just go to our backyard and we see your glory. We go to the park and see your glory. We gaze at those loved ones that you've put in our lives. Who bear your image and gaze at your glory. Oh, Lord Jesus, give us an appreciation for your goodness in all things. Christ's name.